0: There is a a wonderful teaching from Zen Master Dogen, and it goes like this. It says, to study the Buddhist way is to be intimate with all things. And one of the understandings is that when we're really free internally, an expression of that is a sense of of intimacy and and by that of truly belonging to or being connected with all facets of life. There's not as much the picking and choosing. There's an openness that really contacts the life that's here. And we call our, our, our residential retreats intimacy with life because the fruit of meditation, of paying attention is that experience of opening the heart to be very, very inclusive. So I'm gonna speak to that some tonight in tonight's talk about the nature of being intimate with all things. Just to say that at the closing of the retreat, and I've found this now year after year, retreat after retreat, there's one common denominator and that is that there's a reporting out of you know, being outside and feeling like oh, this sense of really belonging to the land one woman sent me her photographs of milkweed she said, I fell in love with milkweed you know, it's like this sense of amazing sensitivity and connection with the land and then there's a then the other reporting out is a sense of you know, I feel this sense of connection with my own heart you know, and then for so many, you know, we didn't speak for this week but I feel a sense of really, um, these were my silent buddies there's a sense of, of cherishing the beings that were there those experiences of intimacy don't happen right away they're a fruit of the purposeful regular attention to the moment intimacy comes out of being able to be right here in the moment And one of the descriptions I love the best of it or understandings is in a poem by Dorothy Hunter. I'll read it to you. In this choiceless, never-ending flow of life there is an infinite array of choices. One alone brings happiness to love what is in this choiceless never-ending flow of life there is an infinite array of choices one alone brings happiness to love what is so that's strong language I mean, it's saying basically there's no way to be happy if we can't embrace the life that's right here there's just no way to be happy there are ways to temporarily feel excited or stimulated or seek pleasure or get what we want on superficial levels but until we arrive in that kind of presence that can befriend and embrace exactly how it is we're in some way in an argument with reality to love what is. Now the reality is you can't jump from aversion to what is and say, oh, okay, spiritually speaking, I should be loving what is and then just flip a switch. That's, you know, that's another kind of false effort. So loving with what is begins in a very simple way. It begins with this willingness to be with what is to not try to change it manipulate it, control it deny it. it so we ease into loving what is and that's really what happens at a retreat and at what's happened, it's what happens as you start training in the kind of practice we're doing here and at home that you're kind of agreeing to be with what comes up and sometimes you find that you totally abandon the moment or you're totally caught in a kind of a mind state of aversion or judgment. And then there's something eventually that goes, Oh, oh, okay. This is about being present with what is. And then you come back. So there's forgetting and remembering. And gradually, when your heart is sincere about being here, that unfolds into loving what is. It unfolds into it. So I'd like to explore, the the focus tonight will be the two basic trainings of presence that allows us to unfold into loving what is, into an intimacy with life that's not trying to control our experience as much as live our life and live it fully. The two trainings, just to give you the heads up, are learning how to befriend what's difficult and learning how to really open to the beauty and the goodness that's here because we would think we are great with the good stuff and not with the not good stuff but the truth is that we're equally distracted and reactive so we'll get into that I've shared here a line from Rilke that encompasses this which is, let everything happen to you let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. So that's kind of Rilke's expression of it. So we begin with the training of how do we hang in? How do we begin to just let be what's here when it's difficult, when everything in us is totally designed? Our nervous system's designed to say, I don't like this, may it go away. And the training is learning to stay because something in us intuits that by staying there truly is greater happiness and freedom even though temporarily it doesn't feel good. So I'd like to read to you an email that I got from uh, a friend in the sangha that comes to this class and also attends classes with Hugh Byrne and it's addressed to Hugh and myself wanted you to know that for me this week mindfulness practice yielded an unexpected benefit. On Wednesday I had an embedded cyst surgically removed from my gums not a painless or bloodless procedure and one that uses local rather than general anesthesia so I was fully awake during the whole thing. Decided there was no time like the present to be fully present. I recognized and allowed my pain and discomfort and brought myself quietly back to being here, being here being here. At the end, my surgeon commented on my equanimity, and because of that, he gave me a 20% discount on the surgery, (laughs) which equated, which equaled several hundred dollars. Perhaps he's used to patients getting noticeably upset when their mouths start to look like they've been in a ring with Rocky, (laughs) a totally unexpected surprise. In honor of you both, I am contributing the discount to IMCW. Wanted to thank you for your teaching. (laughs) So anyone else have a dentist appointment coming up? (laughs) Anyway, I loved it because really um, there's no way of avoiding going to the dentist or whatever else it is that's unpleasant. I mean, life is going to play itself so either we get that and begin to register that our freedom comes in learning to take refuge to take refuge in an awareness and in a kindness and in a kind of a spaciousness that can find some balance in the midst of it versus investing in seeing how much we can control things to avoid what's difficult and that's the choice and the spiritual path can go incredibly deep when we begin to choose out of some wisdom to take refuge in presence. So what blocks this kind of intimacy or presence, as I mentioned, is, and it's not our faults it's that these nervous systems really are directly rigged to anticipate or feel unpleasantness and to go, don't like, no way. I mean, that is just our are are ringing we're we're designed to try to control our experience and so we have many different versions of how we do it i mean for some of us we totally dissociate from our bodies some of us go into qu- you know telling a lot of stories um, you know so, some of us numb some of us judge some of us pretend it's not happening but the bottom line is that in any moment that you're trying to control your experience, which includes controlling another person, you can't be intimate with the life that's here they don't coexist controlling including trying to figure things out and being lost in thought and so on and intimacy don't coexist there's an equation that people find very helpful and it's that pain times resistance equals suffering. So when the inevitable unpleasantness comes to the degree that you resist, meaning to the degree that you judge it, fight it, blame somebody for it, blame yourself for it, any of those things, that actually locks in the suffering. The other equation is pain times no resistance or zero equals no suffering in fact in the moments that there's no resistance your whole sense of who you are shifts we actually know ourselves our familiar sense of self is really characterized by our way of resisting it's almost like that is a definition of self our particular form of resisting or grasping or controlling so when that Behavior, when we step out of it, we're really stepping out of our familiar, small, limited sense of self. So, one of the main ways we resist, of course, is to turn on ourselves. You know, it's almost like we'd rather blame something than just feel what's here. And I have people tell me that they'll say, Tara, I can be compassionate with everybody else in the world but myself. And I actually don't believe that because what I've found is that that's a kind of abstract compassion but real compassion the tenderness of compassion exactly how we are relating to our inner life we relate to the world around us we don't have two different switches if we have the capacity to be intimate with the painful, shadowy, difficult parts within ourselves you know, the ways that we can be hurtful to others, or the ways that we forget, the ways that we react. If we can be tender towards that, we have tremendous tenderness and tolerance and understanding of others. If we're turned on ourselves, our compassion's abstract. Does that make sense? That there's a relationship between how we treat our inner life and how we relate to the world around us? It's never one-way judgment so there are two main elements to how we avoid intimacy and the bottom line is that intimacy is an expression of freedom and we both totally long for it I mean if and just think of our longing for intimacy with a particular person that's one element we long for closeness I mean we want to feel tenderness and connection and understanding and and belonging we long for it, and we fear it equally. There is a total tugging in both directions. So we have two main ways that we avoid intimacy with the moment, with life, with others. One is that we leave our bodies. We can't be intimate when we leave our bodies. We can't be in touch with our feelings, be in touch with our moods and we can't even be intuitive about other people if we leave our bodies but that's one of the things we do. We live in our minds. The second thing that we do in addition to particularly living in our minds is we believe our thoughts. In other words, we live in our ideas about how it is and they're often judgmental ideas and we believe them. So those are the two main ways that we block intimacy we leave our body, and we believe our thoughts. And the challenge of that is that this incessant stream of inner dialogue that most of us live with, I mean, you're aware of that, right? Of how many moments of the day there's just this ongoing kind of current of of thoughts about how it all is. The challenge is that in those moments that we're believing our thoughts, we are not intimate with what's right here. And I've come to think of it like we're on a bicycle and believing our thoughts is like just we're just pedaling away from the present moment. Any moment that we're kind of on that train of thoughts and we're believing them, we're just bicycling away from this moment, this body, this heart, this sense of connectedness, we're just leaving. The Buddha, and I think this is one of the most um, eloquent teachings of the Buddha, said that whatever a person frequently thinks and reflects on, that will become the inclination of their mind. Okay, so whatever you most regularly are dwelling on, whatever you're thinking about, that becomes the whole inclination of your mind and your heart and your being. So there's an inquiry, do your thoughts arouse a sense of kindness and connection and benevolence and interest and freedom, creativity? Do your thoughts incline you that way? Or do your daily thoughts more, more reaffirm a sense of a separate self that's got a problem, that's got trouble, that's got things to solve, that has judgments about others and so on, that creates separation? It's an important inquiry. Our whole life experience comes out of our habit of being lost in thought, believing our thoughts, being in that trance. Much of modern neuroscience, one of the most key teachings is that neurons that fire together, wire together. So that if you frequently are thinking about there's trouble around the corner, you know, that thought keeps going through, that fires, that gets wired with other neurons and with the body state of, mm, anxious. Around the corner something's going to be too much to handle. And how many of us live with, if not dread, some sense that around the corner it's going to be too much? And how much does that create a certain tension in us that stops us from really um, savoring, luxuriating, in. what's right here it's very hard to be very open-hearted and in love if we have a biochemistry that says around the corner there's trouble we're preoccupied right so the trouble trance assuming something's wrong keeps us from intimacy And it keeps us locked into a very familiar and limiting sense of self. Very familiar sense of self. There are several versions of how we get into this or what we fixate on in terms of something's wrong. And it helps to get alert to it so you can start tracking the thoughts that are inclining your mind. And in each of them, the common denominator is if there's some argument with how life is, if there's some idea that life should be different, needs to be different, isn't okay, we're at odds. We're in an argument with reality and that's suffering. And that's another definition of suffering, wanting life different, it's not okay as it is. So here are the, the some of the main ways that we get caught in this trance of trouble and one of them is that life that some basic thing about our life should be different it shouldn't be the way it is meaning that um, we shouldn't be feeling sick we shouldn't be getting older like this you know we shouldn't be uh, in a work situation that we're in that something's wrong with how we are at work or that in some way life isn't treating us right, that it shouldn't be so uncertain or so uncomfortable. There's a complaint about life, there's a grievance. And it's interesting that when it, sometimes if we're feeling uh, in a real spiritual way, gracious and good, and life, life's kind of cooperating, and then as soon as life doesn't go our way, we see just how attached we were to having everything be a certain way. It's very revealing. One Tibetan teacher says, when your belly is full and the sun is shining upon you, you act like a holy person. But when negativity befalls you, then you act very ordinary. <laughs> you know? So we accept it when it's, when it's good. It's like pe- people at retreat, when they're having a great meditation, everything's great, and then when the weather isn't so good, then all of a sudden everything's not good. I mean, imagine if every day our whole well-being was hitched to the weather outside. You know? Today was a great day, right? But it's not always that way. Some of you might remember the story of a novice who's introduced to her new cell at a monastery and she's told this is a silent practice, no speaking in this monastery. But every five years she gets an interview with Mother Superior and she's allowed to say three words. Okay? Strict. So five years pass, she has her interview with Mother Superior who asks, Well, how are you doing, my child? And the novice says, Bed too hard. Okay. Well, keep practicing and praying, answers Mother Superior. And five more years pass, they meet again. Mother Superior asks how she's doing. And this time the novice said, Food is bad. <laughs> Mother Superior responds, Keep practicing, keep praying. And her next interview, now this is 15 years after her arrival, uh, Mother Superior asks her again how she's doing and the novice says, I quit now. <laughs> Mother Superior looks at her and says, Well, I'm not surprised. You have been doing nothing but complaining ever since you got here. <laughs> so this is one trance, is the one of kind of, you know, the feeling of just kind of having a complaint. You're just, on some level, a complaint about things. It's a trance because it covers over our life moments. Now the second version of this trouble trance is really how others should be. And we all have our ideas. I mean, unless we're in a very, very free space of mind, we have imprinted in our brain ideas about how others should act and be. Definitely how they should treat us, but how they should operate in the world and, you know, even in mammals, there are other mammals other than us there is an idea of fairness and some categories that they have on how creatures should be but for us the flag of being in this should place and should is the key word, how others should be behaving should is an immediate indicator that we are arguing with reality they are as they are should is an overlay It doesn't serve them, it doesn't serve us. That's different than discriminating wisdom. Discriminating wisdom will look at a person and say, when that person acts in that angry way, when that person raises their voice that way, when that person is always taking things for themselves, they end up making me and other people feel such and such. You see the cause and effect. But there's not an added kind of aversive statement of bad evil wrong it doesn't have aversion it doesn't make a person wrong it just recognizes cause and effect that's discriminating wisdom but in this version of a trouble trance it's how others should be and we lock into wrong and in any moment of blame and this is really really in my own practice this has been a, a key thing in any moment of blame there's an experience of separation and my sense of who I am becomes smaller and that other person becomes smaller intimacy is gone in any moment of blame in fact one of my major practices over the last uh, few years has been to just be mindful of blame like that just to commit myself to noticing when there's blame And sometimes there's kind of some lag time or there's kind of an undercurrent of just, you know, in some subtle way or not so subtle way, putting down, making somebody not okay. But when I catch it, I get that it's suffering. It's like, I am not inhabiting a largeness of being. My heart is not awake when I'm believing the story of blame it happens at all levels that we get smaller with blame boy announces proudly to his father I'm going to marry grandma dad and gently says son you can't do that children don't marry grandparents why not you married my mom so I'm going to marry yours (laughs) marrying grandma The, the most painful just to mention with blaming um, it takes us from intimacy and it's most painful, we can see it when there's somebody that we're close to that we've locked into resentment with and sometimes it gets so familiar the resentment you're not doing your share you're letting me down you're not doing it right you should be different it's so subtle that we don't realize it's happening and we live for days, weeks, months, years somewhat separate from beings that are really precious to us. And I bring this up because I remember very well when my son was in high school and it was kind of junior high, early high school, I think it was more like ninth, 10th grade, I was so appalled at uh, video games, the um, addiction. I mean, it was not only video games, violent video games I was just it just violated my sensibilities all the way through and through and between that combined with not doing homework the way I thought that should be done I was i was really resentful and angry and, and it bled over it wasn't like okay, it's five o'clock, now I'm resentful because you're not doing your homework. It could be on on a weekend when we were going shopping, but somehow or other, my heart was tightened in a kind of a chronic resentment that he was not behaving the way I thought he should behave. And I remember um, at some point, I think it was when I was on a retreat, doing a a loving-kindness practice and bringing my son up and sensing his, his deep goodness and my love for him and then this wash of grief at how many moments in daily life I wasn't inhabiting that larger space of caring. And I knew that I could have the same, I could have wise discrimination of what video games might be doing and what he, what it would be the ways that behaving could serve him without that added kind of negation of aversion and bad personhood. It was very compelling because I could see almost you know, this was ninth or 10th grade, that it was going to be a blink of the eye. And he was going to be in college and I would have walked through all those day after day, moment after moment times with him, kind of tight. It really shifted things for me. Let me invite you to reflect for a moment. Just take this, uh, we've been talking about these versions of when we get caught in this trouble trance that, that really makes intimacy difficult. And let me invite you to use this as a pause to first get connected if you're not already connected with what's right here in your body. Just feel your breath again. You might notice the fact of leaving that sometimes when we're listening we don't stay in touch with ourselves. You might take a few full breaths. you might let yourself review or reflect on who's in your life and and sense where there's somebody that you are regularly around that you might be in the habit of in some way thinking they should be different than they are that they should change their way of behaving or thinking something that it's not easy for you just to say okay, this person's like this and have your heart feel open and loving and for a moment when you come up with this just sense the person and sense the, the thought and the belief and the feeling of he or she should change in a certain way how much you want them to change and be different and just notice the quality of your heart without judgment this is just a real it's a gift to yourself just this honest investigation of what happens to your heart when you're believing the thoughts and the feelings that somebody else should be different than they are what would happen if you let go of the you should be different if you just let the human imperfection and the goodness just be there if you can just get a glimpse of that for a moment what would your heart be like if you just let that person be as they are and it was really okay. Can you sense the space in your heart that opens up? Who would you be if really there was a letting go of that stance that someone should be different? To let, you can take a few breaths and open your eyes and just let that be an inquiry and know that um, this movement towards intimacy towards letting others in life be as it is doesn't mean that we allow people to violate us doesn't mean we allow people to violate others they can't take care of themselves we still appropriately respond to take care of this life but it means in our hearts that we in a true way, in a very direct way do not hold blame and make others wrong we're coming from discriminating wisdom not aversive judgment now the last place that I want to mention where we get into this trance of something's wrong that blocks intimacy is of course something's wrong with moi and that's the main place where we go wild You know, this is where we are most crazy, where we spend the most moments at war, which is that on some level we're constantly monitoring how we're doing and we're very often coming up short in our own minds. And we cannot be intimate with our world, we cannot feel love for our world if we have locked into feeling and believing that we're falling short. And if there's anything you leave here tonight a little more awake to or committed to it would be stopping the war. It's the greatest gift you could give yourself and the greatest gift you could give the planet Earth is to recognize this trance of something's wrong with me and recognize how it prevents any authentic intimacy any real freedom. So that's where we turn turn on ourselves. And it's not just with... um, It's not just something's wrong with me. It's often when we have physical pain or emotional pain we add on to it that I'm wrong or I'm bad for it. So the training, the training to move back towards intimacy is to encounter the unpleasantness that's going on. If it's physical pain, the unpleasantness of physical pain as the woman did in that email or if it's emotional pain, emotional pain and choose to stay and that requires and here's the core of it it requires stepping out of our story about what's happening if we're believing our story that this pain means X, Y, and Z and it's never going to go away or whatever it is we're not going to be able to come to some peace or balance or presence with it. If we're caught in the story of this way that I'm behaving or thinking or acting means this about me, we're not going to be able to bring a healing presence to where the wounds are, where the fears are. Stepping out of the story, coming into our being. On physical pain, the practice is to step out of thoughts and actually feel the constellation and don't call it pain, just sensations and begin to sense how the sensations are in your body and it really helps to soften around pain. If you just close your eyes for a moment just to check out your body right now. We started with the poem, Love What Is, how do we be intimate with unpleasant physical sensations? It's a really important question. So you might check and scan through your body and notice if there's any place in your body where it feels a little uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable. And if you find a place, most of us have places like that, first, allow yourself to soften around it. In other words, create some space around it mentally and physically. You might breathe with the sense of where the discomfort is, as if you're letting the breath itself contact and keep you connected with what's going on, but also to help give you some space. Soften your hands. if it's not overwhelming pain or physical unpleasantness get interested enough to sense the texture heat, density, movement of sensation so there's a little investigation notice that it's changing, moving not a solid block If it's very strong, you might check in with the unpleasantness but then shift your attention a little and listen or you might open your eyes and sense the space of the room so that there's kind of as if you're dipping your toe into the river and then taking your foot out of the river but still here, still present. This is the words of Anne Morrow Lindbergh she says, go with the pain, let it take you open your palms and your body to the pain it comes in waves like a tide and you must be open as a vessel lying on the beach letting it fill you up and then retreating leaving you empty and clear with a deep breath it has to be as deep as the pain one reaches a kind of inner freedom from pain as though the pain were not yours but your body's the spirit lays the body on the altar. The spirit lays the body on the altar. So with physical (laughs) unpleasantness, this presence with it, this noticing, this letting it be as full as it is, allows you to open out of the identification with it and to rest in a much more vast and open presence. There is a shift in identity. This is the magic of mindfulness. A moment of being mindful of unpleasantness without reacting reconnects you with a quality of openness and space. Now, in working with emotional pain it's the identical practice of noticing when you've been lost in the story and coming and feeling the emotional intensity as a physical sensation you feel it in your body and you say yes that is the direct way of becoming intimate with what's right here if you want to open your eyes you can I'll give you an example because a lot of the um, A lot of emotional pain arises in relationships. So I'd like to give you an example of where there's wounding in relationship and how you can become intimate with your own self because you cannot reestablish connection with another person if you haven't brought an intimate attention inward. I teach a lot about forgiveness and I often have the question of how can I forgive this person and I'm find myself over and over saying don't even think about that right now your job first is to bring an intimate attention to the place of woundedness within you and if you haven't brought self-compassion to where you're wounded there's no way you're gonna have a, a forgiving heart towards another person widening circles we start with what's here so when about five years ago a woman she had three children came to me and found out her husband had been having actually serial number of affairs she was in a a huge rage and she asked me that question Tara how can I forgive him? I said don't even bother trying not right now it would be a false or premature forgiveness it wouldn't be real forgiveness start bringing an attention to your own body and heart so her job was to become intimate with what was going on inside her and what was there intense rage so she had to work to step out of the storyline because this is key with anger the way to work with anger to be intimate with anger is to step out of the story of that person did wrong, he never should have she couldn't, he told me you know, to get out of that hole back forth and then come into the body where the energy is and let the energy play itself let it rip, actually, as one of my friends says if we push under anger if we have some idea that anger is not spiritual it just morphs into something even more toxic every emotion is intelligent every emotion is intelligent And our practice is to get intimate with the emotion without believing the beliefs. So for her, getting intimate with that rage was absolutely essential in healing. And she had to keep saying yes to it. And I find for myself, when I get angry, there's sometimes a little lag time where I'm angry, I'm believing my thoughts, and then I notice I'm angry, and then I'm down on myself for getting so small-minded or mean-spirited. And then I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. It just it's just another weather system, it's okay." So then I actually forgive the anger. Not forgive like, oh, this is bad, but I forgive it, but just forgive that this is the weather that's here, it's okay. So that was for her really important, to say yes to the anger. Not yes to believing her stories, but to the anger, okay? When she could do that, the anger revealed what was under it, which was a tremendous amount of shame that he did he laughed he was he was not true to me because i am undesirable and because i am a withholding person and because i'm actually not a soft tender person and because i'm judgement you know she just got into this laundry list of what's wrong with me so she flipped her rage and blame to me shame blame again not believing the thoughts but feeling the pain of that the ache the emptiness breathing with it yes yes I'm with this getting intimate with that which revealed the next layer and the core layer which is a deep sense of a kind of a hurt and a separation and a fear that I'll never be close with anybody again fear of separation the pain of separation And that's when she was able to, I sometimes do in here, put her hand on her heart and breathe and say yes and really feel a self-compassion that was authentic. When she could be in that place of intimacy with that deep level of fear, I'll never be close with anyone again, her heart was open enough to then see more clearly about her husband, see his fears, his sense of disappointment in life, his fear that he was going to get old and not feel intimacy. She divorced, but she was able to maintain a quality of uh, connection with him that they could parent together in a way that was really respectful and friendly. Which is the point of this, that forgiving doesn't mean that we don't draw boundaries putting down should and blame and wrong and bad doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves but it means that we allow ourselves to be intimate with the life within and around us in a way that's freeing a poem for you this is called The Healing Time finally on my way to yes I bump into all the places where I said no to my life all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy, holy. So this is the first training in being intimate with life, is to begin to stay and begin to let go of the stories and bring to our body and our heart a very tender, open attention. Holy, holy, holy. The second training is to begin to intentionally, purposefully look to see the goodness that's within ourselves and each other we teach uh, the formal training of the loving-kindness practice where we take some moments and you might just right now do this just to close your eyes and sense what happens in this this is an intimacy training if you just have the intention to honor the life that's within you have the intention to appreciate something about this life that's right here and it may be that you appreciate your intention to be honest or to wake up that you appreciate that you really want to love well this is as much a part of our training to be intimate with all things as anything else that we can behold the life that's right here, sense our own sincerity, and feel a sense of respect, of appreciation. For some, it can help to imagine looking through the eyes of someone who sees you well, who sees you truly, who cares. You might try that. What do you see? What do you see when you look through another person's eyes? The word good means to belong to belong to at the root of the word good to kind of a sense of wholeness. As we begin to appreciate the life within us we come into more of a wholeness that holy, holy, holy. The training and again open your eyes if you'd like in in goodness and i am of course spent most of the time on the training of being with difficulty includes slowing down in our life and savoring whatever we experience where there's a moment of beauty, there's a moment of sweetness where we appreciate another person, where we slow down on one of these fall days and we really take in the colors and the the brilliance that's here, where we actually intentionally savor. Finally, in the most basic way, Um, This training in goodness means being available. And I want to, because we can't be intimate with each other in our life if we're not available, if we are riding that bicycle away from the present moment, we will not, we'll race to the finish line in our life, to death, and not have arrived. If most of our moments are that we're preparing for something, do you know the moments that we feel like we're preparing for something else? or we're trying to figure out something or we're trying to get through the day we can't be available so availability to this moment uh, it doesn't matter whether you die in three years or thirty years if, if you're not available you'll have lost out so I want to um, I'm going to close soon but I want to share with you a story that um, I thought spoke to this when I was quite young, my father had one of the first telephones in our neighborhood. I remember well the polished old case fastened to the wall. The shiny receiver hung on the side of the box. I was too little to reach the telephone, but used to listen with fascination when my mother used to talk to it. Then I discovered that somewhere inside the wonderful device lived an amazing person. Her name was Information Please and there was nothing she did not know. Information, please, could supply anybody's number in the correct time, too. My first personal experience with this genie in the bottle came one day while my mother was visiting a neighbor. Amusing myself at the tool bench in the basement, I whacked my finger with a hammer. The pain was terrible, but there didn't seem to be any reason in crying because there was no one at home to give sympathy. I walked around the house sucking my throbbing finger, finally arriving at the stairway, the telephone. The telephone. Quickly, I ran for a footstool in the parlor and dragged it into the landing. Climbing up, I unhooked the receiver in the parlor and held it to my ear. Information, please, I said into the mouthpiece just above my head. A click or two and a small clear voice spoke into my ear. Information? I hurt my finger, I wailed into the phone. (laughs) The tears came readily enough now that I had an audience. "'Isn't your mother home?' came the question. <laughs> "'Nobody's home but me,' I blubbered. "'Are you bleeding?' "'No,' I replied. "'I hit my finger with the hammer and it hurts.' "'Can you open your icebox?' she said. "'I said I could.' "'Then chip off a little piece of ice and hold it to your finger,' said the voice." After that, I called Information Please for everything. (laughs) I asked her for help with my geography, and she told me where Philadelphia was. She helped me with my math. She told me my pet chipmunk that I had caught in the park just the day before would eat fruits and nuts. Then there was a time Petey, our pet canary, died. I called Information Please and told her the sad story. She listened, then said the usual grown-up things that grown-ups say to children. I was unconsoled. I asked her, why is it the birds sing so beautifully and bring joy to all families only to end up as a heap of feathers on the bottom of a cage she must have sensed my deep concern for she said quietly Paul always remember that there are other worlds to sing in somehow I felt better another day I was on the telephone information please information said the now familiar voice how do you spell fix I asked All this took place in a small town in the Pacific Northwest. When I was nine years old, we moved across the country to Boston. I missed my friend very much. Information, please, belonged in that old wooden box back home, and somehow I never thought of trying the tall, shiny new phone that sat on the table in my hall. As I grew into my teens, the memories of those childhood conversations never really left me. Often in moments of doubt and perplexity, I would recall the serene sense of security I had then. I appreciate, appreciated now how patient, understanding, and kind she was to have spent her time on a little boy. A few years later, on my way west to college, my plane touched down in Seattle. I had about half an hour or so between planes. I spent 15 minutes or so on the phone with my sister, who lived there now, and then, without thinking what I was doing, I dialed my hometown operator and said, "'Information, please.' Miraculously, I heard the small, clear voice I knew so well. Information. I hadn't planned this, but I heard myself saying, could you please tell me how to spell fix? (laughs) There was a long pause. Then came the soft-spoken answer. I guess your finger must have healed by now. I laughed. So it's really still you, I said. I wonder if you have any idea how much you meant to me during that time. I wonder, she said, if you know how much your calls meant to me. I've never had any children. I used to look forward to your calls. I told her how often I'd thought of her over the years and I asked if I could call her again when I came back to visit my sister. Please do, she said. Ask for Sally. Three months later, I was back in Seattle. A different voice answered, Information. I asked for Sally. Are you a friend? she asked. Yes a very old friend I answered I'm sorry to have to tell you this she said but Sally's been working part-time for the last few years because she was sick she died five weeks ago before I could hang up she said wait a minute is your name Paul yes well Sally left a message for you she wrote it down in case you called let me read it to you the note says tell him I still say there are other worlds to sing in he'll know what I mean I thanked her and hung up, I knew what Sally meant. There is a longing in each of us for that kind of intimacy where we're available. There's a, a beautiful verse from Nikki Giovanni, she says, and if ever I touched a life, I hope that life knows that I know the touching was and still is and always will be the true revolution. So this practice of being available begins with right this moment in this body right here. We cannot touch and be touched if we're not here for it. And it takes training. We have and it's not our fault, but we have huge conditioning to bicycle off moment after moment into judgments and blaming and preoccupation and whatever it is. It's just, it's conditioning, so don't judge it. Instead, just as you reflect and sense what really matters, and you get that place that knows that at your end of your life looking back if you really, really sense what mattered it would be not to bicycle through those moments, to bicycle away, but to really be here to not be caught in the complaint that something's wrong with this world to be not caught in this person should be different to not be caught in I should be different because all of those ways of leaving are ways of leaving the awakened heart and mind that is right here. When we reflect, if we take the moments that we're caught in things should be different, there's a little self there. There's a little self that's at odds with the world. When instead we take those moments where we let ourselves touch and be touched, that we're available, there's not as much a self there as, as what I sometimes call the empty heart that's very awake and very tender and yet not, not contracted into a self-sense. There's an openness. So I'd like to close just with a very brief reflection, if you will, just to close your eyes again. And, and in this moment you might ask yourself what does it mean to be intimate with the life that's right here just to ask yourself that for some to be intimate with the life that's right here means to be willing to stay with a discomfort or sleepiness And for some, it's a willingness and it's a courage to be with some emotional pain, perhaps something that's been unfelt. And for some, intimacy with this moment is to sense the peace that's here, that there maybe is no grasping, not wanting anything different. So to arrive in that, it's a moment of freedom, but it's okay just as it is. To sense what it means to really arrive in this moment, this body, this heart, and say yes to this life just as it is. And that's the beginning of loving what is, to say yes, to not try to make it different in any way. And if you say yes and then explore deepening that yes in a cellular way So exactly these sensations, these feelings, there's truly an allowing, no resistance. That's the gateway to the empty, awake heart. Sensing that whatever arises in these last few moments, whatever it is, that you can lift them one by one close to your heart and say holy, holy, holy. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.